Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 153 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I catch up with Jake Parrott of House Alpins, one of the premier spirits importers in the U.S., focusing on European spirits, liqueurs, and fortified wines. That last category is of particular interest because it ain't just vermouth and cherry we're talking here. More on that later. I've really been hoping to talk to somebody in the distribution and importation industry for a while now because I think it really is one of the missing links in most people's understanding of the spirits industry, right? It's easy to think about a bottle being created at a distillery, but how it gets to be on the shelves at your liquor store or behind your favorite cocktail bar is a detail that sort of intentionally gets swept under the rug in many cases. In this interview, we talk about what makes House Alpens special in the spirits importation and distribution world. But first, let's take a quick time out so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Rose Cocktail. To make it, you'll need two ounces of French vermouth, such as Dolan, which we cover in depth later in the episode, one ounce of Kirschwasser, which is a cherry eau de vie. So it's gonna be made out of a cherry fruit base and it's gonna be completely clear and unaged. One teaspoon of raspberry syrup, most popular as the key ingredient in the Clover Club cocktail. And if you're a fan of our embitterment bitters, a dash or two of orange or lavender would be pretty nice in this drink, at least in my opinion. Combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for about 20 seconds until everything is well chilled and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and enjoy. There's no traditional garnish stipulated here, so I'd recommend following the lead of whichever vermouth you've chosen to use and selecting a garnish accordingly. It's interesting that the only descriptor of the vermouth that I could find in this drink recipe is French. Now. That definitely does tell us something, namely that it's a bit less sweet and often more floral than Italian vermouths, but it doesn't tell us whether we should dope a sweet vermouth or a dry vermouth, or perhaps something like a white vermouth, into this recipe. When I come up against situations like this in the cocktail world, I usually advise you to follow your heart. Which bottle do you think would pair best with Kirschwasser and raspberry syrup? In most cases, I think this is going to be a dry or occasionally a white vermouth, so if you're on the fence, opt for one of those. The Rose Cocktail is one member of Jake's impregnable quadrilateral of low-alcohol stirred drinks, so if that doozy of a title intrigues you, be sure to join us for the lightning round to find out what the other three members might be. So. Now that you're well equipped with a sessionable yet sophisticated cocktail to speed you on your way, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this really informative chat with Jake Parrott, national sales representative for spirits importer House Alpins, some of the topics we cover include 
How Jake took a hobbyist interest in spirits and turned it into a profession. In essence, the sort of story that a lot of our listeners might find inspiring. How House Alpins grew to become one of the foremost champions of spirits and fortified wines that don't often make it to the U.S. The story of Dolan Vermouth and how it changed the face of the mixed drink scene at a key moment in the cocktail renaissance. Then, we conducted two-bottle tasting of House Alpen's spirits, including Pasubio Vino Amaro and Dolan Genepi. We also cover a lot of the ins and outs of the spirits importation and distribution game, including how bottles make their way to the U.S. from abroad, and how various regulatory and logistical hurdles are cleared. We also talk about the fascinating oxidized and rancio wines from Spain and the south of France, what indispensable tool Jake carries on him at all times when doing demos, and much, much more. This conversation has it all. Tasting notes, history, geography, culture, and some fun inside baseball that sheds light on often overlooked aspects of the spirit's distribution game. Jake is a wealth of knowledge, and his palate is second to none. So I do recommend following him and House Alpins on social media and calling your local liquor store to learn which of their labels are available in your neck of the woods. With that, please enjoy this excellent interview with Jake Parrott of House Alpins. Jake, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So as we like to do here, can you just start us off by talking a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, so my name is Jake Parrott. I'm a national sales rep for a company called House Alpens. Uh, we're importers uh, of products and represent a, a wide range of stuff, both in the, in the classic cocktail and spirits world, but also uh, a little bit of um, traditional aged oxidative wines. Um, and so before COVID time, I, I, my job was to travel and teach and help our distributors sell uh, the, the breadth of our portfolio to retailers, to bars, to restaurants, and then educate, uh, educate every one of those types of customers on the best way to, to use, the uh, best ways to use each product to get value out of their, their own world. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine that your job looks very different now. Um, and, uh, but, uh, can, can you talk about the, the, the road that you took to, uh, find your way to house Alpins? Yeah. We'll start by saying that the, the drinks enthusiast community in 2005 was a very different world. It was a, it was a small community and I, uh, I started as a whiskey enthusiast as so many people are now and met a, a fellow named Bill Thomas, who if he hasn't been on the show already, probably should be. He's the owner now of Jack Rose Dining Saloon in Washington, D.C. Back then, he owned two bourbon-themed bars, both called Bourbon in Washington, D.C. And through him and through some contacts on the West Coast, I met Drew Colesveen at Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, uh, or what we now call the Willett Distillery in Bardstown, and was able to, with Bill pick a few barrels of Willett family estate, uh, a couple of very famous rye barrels and some bourbon barrels. And we kept picking barrels and, and we couldn't find a, a distributor to clear them in to DC so that mostly they could be sold at bourbon and then a little bit sold to some retailers and some other bars. And so uh, some of Bill's friends got together and, and sort of set up a small distributor 
to clear the product. And over time, because of Bill and my connections and some other folks' connections in the the nascent cocktail scene, uh, some other opportunities came available to represent some other product lines. We brought Aviation Gin to Washington, D.C. We brought uh, Nissan and LaFavorite Rums to Washington, D.C. And uh, a few folks introduced us to Eric Seed of House Alpens, who was at that point already getting a reputation of, of bringing in those lost and forgotten cocktail ingredients that we all wanted after reading books like Ted Hayes' book, uh, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails. And so we took him on and that was about a year before Eric started working with uh, Vermouth Dolan, which is sort of what turned House Alpens into a, a, a bigger company, or at least a company with more uh, turnover and, and um, sales. By 2012, my wife and I were able to uh, uh, make it so I could make a career change, and I went to start work for Eric. That's awesome. That's a that's a really cool story, and and there's um obviously some interesting players in there. Bill, uh, from Jack Rose. Obviously, it's uh it's an institution here in D.C. Uh, it was kind of tough to see them have to uh, put all of their you know rare and and uh, expensive bottles on a fire sale to you know help fund their way through uh, this this situation here. But I, I have a feeling that they'll probably come out all right in the end. Yeah, it's not a fire sale. It's uh, um, they they've got they've been getting uh, good money and keeping their team together for it. Uh, they've started to slowly reopen the roof deck at Jack Rose. Um, we'll see what's what's going on in the future. But um, you know, Bill Bill had already been working on allowing bars to sell package uh, at retail anyway, at least in a few specific contexts, and so. He was ready uh, when when this became available. Right, right. Um, well, I think maybe an an interesting place to to kind of dig into now would be uh, with the product, as you mentioned, that kind of made House Alpens. Uh, as you mentioned, Dolan, which uh, most Americans would pronounce Dolan. Uh, we see these bottles kind of ubiquitously on the shelves now, which is great because that wasn't the case maybe five to seven years ago. Um, but, uh, the, the Rouge, the Blanc and the dry are pretty much a, a staple in any good liquor store that, that has any sort of, um, cocktail following. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that brand and maybe, uh, tell the story of Dona and, and how they transformed not only, you know, house Alpins, but also kind of the, the cocktail industry. I, I think, you know, I think it's easy to to look back and see that impact as as being very large. I think at the time, it was simply a, a product at a nice price that that could keep retailers interested in what we were doing, and and the the dry providing a a very different style of dry vermouth than what you saw out there. You either had Italian products that were on the sweet end of things. Uh, or uh, a product like Nuai Prat, which is is kind of different in America than it is elsewhere, um, and Dolan had a freshness to it that that kind of pricked people's ears up. People got excited to taste vermouth. Still today, uh, I every so often I'll pour someone Dolan dry for the first time. Um, but I think a lot of what what it was 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 simply having a product at a very good price that uh, that we could sustain and and grow. 
with us as a company and with our distributors uh, as a company. It's yes, it, it's certainly nice to be known as as being associated with Dolan when I talk to to bar folks, but uh, the it, it's the the ability to get uh, retailers all the way through the spectrum from enthusiast retailers to grocery to to get on board was a real key point for for us as a company. Well, and it's interesting too. Like think think about a bar and think about you know a liquor store situation, and and you admittedly find yourself in in, in both roles, right? Speaking to bartenders yeah. and bar teams, and then speaking to you know the off premise sales teams. When I look at a product like Dolan, what makes it so special to me is the fact that you know okay, we know that like you know as of at least going back a couple years. Uh, you know, about half a decade, bar teams have access to these cool bottles through reps like you that they can, you know, kind of build a program around. But unfortunately, you know, like a lot of those bottles come at a price point where it's not going to be accessible for a home bartender to just go ahead and make an impulse buy or pull the trigger on it unless they're super well off. Uh, And I think the difference with Dolan is that like, yeah, all of a sudden we've got this product line that is making huge impact in the quality of cocktails, uh, but it is at that impulse by price point. Uh, and they have the, the um, you know, variety of bottle sizes, which makes that even easier, um, you know, with bitters that we create and sell, you know, we, we even see like a lot of um, tentativity when it comes to like, well, how often am I going to use this? Um, if that's a question that you have when you look at a bottle, uh, you know, a, a small bottle of Dolan, um, Rouge or Dry Vermouth, the answer is, well, you know, you're spending like what, $10, $12 and you'll, you know, at, at worst, that's a, a pretty easy sunk cost to swallow if you don't end up liking it. So that's to me is the difference between something like a Dolan and maybe some of the other bottles that uh, you may carry in your portfolio, like some of the more expensive rums or some of the more esoteric um uh, Rancio wines, for example. Well, and, and I, I think part of that, though, was also we were the first people in a long time to very broadly go out and, and sell and educate about vermouth and other aromatized wines, in particular about putting aromatized wines in the fridge. And maybe it's it's too presumptuous to say teaching people how to taste aromatized wines, but but at least giving them the, helping giving them the tools to to succeed and 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 be better tasters of aromatized wines. And that, that's been a huge thing. And, and it helps sustain conversations when, when conversations need to be sustained. And so, yeah, uh, I think we'll come back to education. Um, certainly, uh, later in the interview, because, um, you know, you're pretty legendary for, um, some of the, the ways that you choose to go about <laughs> educating palates. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about that, but, um, yeah. could you give us, um, uh, a kind of a summary of House Alpens's portfolio in a, in a bit more detail, uh, because obviously the name of the, the company itself sort of indicates that there might be a, you know, an Italy, France, kind of Germany, Switzerland focus in the Alps. And uh, obviously there's uh, certain categories of products that happen to arise there, many of which really don't make it to uh, our shores very often, unless they are, you know, from a company that's like a Campari, for example. Um, so I was hoping that you could just take us through um, some of your, uh, just a little bit more detail so that people can understand what your portfolio is and, and kind of how it moves. 
Sure. So we started with Austrian products, which is where the name comes from. Uh, Eric had had studied in Austria and worked in Austria and is a skier. Uh, so our very first product was actually Zerbenz, which is a liqueur made from the fruit of a very particular uh, alpine conifer that's, that's sort of the classic upper ski in Austria. The uh, part of the fun of of that time of in the in the drinks enthusiast world was that you could start by cultivating a small community, um, and that small community was just happy to meet other curious people. They weren't overloaded with marketing. They weren't overloaded with events or or anything like that. And through Eric's work in Austria, he met. Uh, other spirits producers in Austria and in other places, and through his work in the field, especially in Colorado and California and New York, he met pe people who like Ted Hay, uh, Daryl Cordy, when you're talking about Koki, um, who who had interest in other products, and he had the time and inclination to go and pursue them. And so, you know, the the to to say how Salpins is is the evolution of one man's vision is pretty close to accurate. Um, and, uh, just, you know, we could grow with our community or with the community, uh, both in terms of our staff, but also in terms of how much stock we would take on of a product. Right. Right. Um, so luckily we were able to kind of chat before this interview and, um, I already had uh, a bottle of the. Uh, Dolan Genepi, which is a very uh, near and dear product to my heart. And then you uh, hooked me up with um, a tip about this Pasubio Amaro. So, um, you know, I, I, I like to taste on air because I think it gives people um, a sense of place and a sense of, you know, just kind of like being there and imagining uh, being able to use these products. So um, do you want to just do a quick little uh, two bottle tasting so we can sure. uh, get a sense? Sure. And I'll try to do as much of the talking as possible so that there won't be too much slurp sounds. Um, <laughs> so uh, Pasubio Vino Amaro comes from our friends at Eberisteria Capaletti. Uh, Capaletti is a wonderful family uh, liqueur producer and, and Amaro maker. Uh, they have a, um, they don't have a still on site on site, but they do sell some distilled products that they make uh, at a front on a friend's still. The, um, and their history goes back to 1906 as sort of the local herbalist for the city of Trento. Trento is the is north of Verona. It's kind of the last city in Italy up the Adige until you get into up to Innsbruck through the Brenner Pass and up to Innsbruck uh, in Austria. And so, they, matter of fact, they had a store in Trento that if you go to it today, they don't own it anymore, though a lot of their products are there. It looks like a natural pharmacist. So it, it, the herbaristeria essentially means natural pharmacist. And what Pasubio is, is a recipe, <clears throat> kind of a local expression recipe from their, from their archives. Uh, a, a very typical combination uh, in their region of wild blueberry, um, Mugo, which is a scrub pine, uh, kind of comes up to your hip and you use the springtime tip, tips, uh, and a little bit of rhubarb root. Rhubarb root, something you see in all kinds of mountain Amari. Uh, it's smoky. Uh, if you've ever had uh, Capaletti's Amaro Sfumato, that's almost entirely rhubarb root. Uh, so that's quite a bit smokier. Here it's just an accent. Now this 
this recipe, they had made many different versions of this recipe over their history. Uh, some spirit-based, some wine-based, some sweeter, some drier. And so we worked with them to, to resurrect the recipe. Uh, we got to discuss with them the, the choices that could be made. And so um, we always like to do wine-based things, partially because it's, it's easier to sell them in some states, but also because if, you, if you're a 1906 producer in a rural area, virtually everything you made at the beginning was wine-based because spirits were tough. Uh, tough to acquire in large quantities or expensive before 1919. Um, so this is wine base. The base is Marsala. Uh, Marsala wine is not from the Alto Adige, but it is uh, something that that Capoletti had always traded in, uh, been kind of the local supplier of Marsala uh, for cooks mainly in in that part of Italy. Um, and the the sugar level is relatively low. Uh, compared to a lot of Italian Amari. And that's that's a manifestation of, of their palates. We're very fortunate. Uh, Maddalena Capoletti, who looks after the business and is is also kind of the, the nose of the establishment, uh, she, she genuinely loves bitter in a way that that is really helpful when you're trying to provide a bitter backbone to a cocktail here in America. Uh, so you've got the great acidity from the Marsala and the blueberries, not super, super sweet. Super low caramel because caramel, when it gets cold, can get a bit thick. Uh, so something that's a lot of fun, and then a great old, great old imagery and, and an old name from their archives. Mm. It's a beautiful flavor. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I did like a little preemptive tasting, and uh, when I was doing that tasting, I got like a lot of you know sort of oxidative, uh, like Madeira-like notes, and. Um, so it kind of maps on with like I was completely unaware of the Marsala connection, but it makes complete sense relative to where it comes from. And um, you know, I think if anybody listening has experienced Marsala in a non-cooking format, uh, a maybe that was a mistake, right? Like you opened that bottle of Marsala that was not refrigerated uh, on accident and decided that you were going to uh, you know take a sip and go for it, and that was probably a mistake. Um, or you just end up, you know, with a, just a mouthful of, like, as you mentioned, the caramel, the sugar, uh, Marsala, and at least in my experience, tends to be a very sweet category and would not necessarily be my first, um, go-to if I were to, you know, if you, someone were to put a gun to my head and say, all right, design me tomorrow, I wouldn't be like, all right, bust out the Marsala. Uh, but I think it, it, it plays really well, as you mentioned, with the acidity in, those blueberries, which is like a very sort of like a wildernessy alpine associative flavor. Uh, so I think it's really nice there. And um, the, you know, I was kind of struggling to identify uh, the exact strain of bitterness in this. Uh, I was trying to figure out what the bittering agent could be. And that rhubarb root, like it's so obvious, like when, as soon as it came out of your mouth, I was like, of course. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I would have been able to pull that out unless I really sat there and started comparing it to other things in my liquor cabinet. But it's beautiful, and it's only 17% um, ABV. Uh, can you talk about that low ABV and maybe if there was any controversy or struggle of having that recognized as an Amaro as opposed to like a very bitter vermouth? I mean, it's not. It, well, first of all, it's not a vermouth because it has that wormwood in it. So that that that's a mm -hmm. that's a very important thing that we we spend a lot of time educating folks on categories of aromatized wine. Um, 
In fact, I, I helped the folks at the Wine and Spirit Education Trust uh, with the content for the level three spirits portfolio on aromatized wine. Um, the, I think it helps for us in that it's not the first Vino Amaro in our portfolio. We've worked for many years with Cardamaro, which is made in Nizza Monferrato in Italy, uh, which is bittered with Cardoon. And so I think we'd already kind of gone down the road of, hey, Amaro just means bitter. It can be wine, it can be spirit. In fact, if you go back far enough and you get rural enough, it was almost certainly wine. Um, so, yeah, well, and the I mean, the it goes all the way back to the Romans, you know, in order to, to and farther, yeah, to, to preserve anything for transport, you know, you 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 had to do something to it. Um, and, and herbs and spices very often just ended up being the best way to do that. So, um, what, uh, what sort of applications do you usually uh recommend for uh Pasubio or perhaps you know, getting into uh, some pairings and uh, things of that nature? We'll start with with drink stuff. Uh, I think uh, one of my team, Lee Edwards, came upon the idea of Pasubio and lemonade, which I think is pretty much perfect. Uh, what a shock! Blueberries and lemon go together. So, so that's that's definitely one that that I really love. We don't have a huge tradition of fizzy lemonade or bottled fizzy lemonade here in America, which is unfortunate. But uh, you can make it yourself. It's it's pretty easy. I think we've all learned in COVID time that a can of club soda costs about twenty five cents. So, um, in terms of spirits, there, there's a variety of ways you you can go. I, I've used this as the the bitter element in a pretty soft Negroni or Boulevardier. Uh, but I would say probably my favorite easy thing to do with it is to is to just mix it with um, a weeded bourbon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, something on the soft side. You, you don't want to a really intense bourbon might combine a bit harshly with the tannins of the blueberries. You know, these are those little itty bitty wild blueberries, not, not the big fat ones we get from New Jersey in the, uh, in the supermarket. So they've got a fair amount of structure to them in addition to sweetness and acidity. So a, a softer, creamier whiskey works really, really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I was looking, um, I don't know if it was on your site or on Capaletti's site. I think it was on House Alpens. Uh, you've got a couple of recommendations for it. You've got um, almost like a 50-50 martini, but instead of uh, gin, you've got the Pasubio Amaro uh, combined in equal parts with the Dolan Dry. Uh, and that's called the Little Dolomite. Uh, kind that's of, a gorgeous drink. You're kind of referencing the, the mountain range that separates these two regions, right? Yeah, that's from uh, Christina Helmer up in New York. And uh, just a, a really, really good example of how alcohol is not necessarily the carrier of flavor in a stirred cocktail or a built cocktail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it just taking this this cocktail that that uh, as an example here, it's an ounce and a half of the Pasubio with an ounce and a half of the Dolan Dry, and I I, I love that because it is. Um, you know, it is both sessionable and unexpectedly uh, complex, I think. You know, when if you were to tell me, listen, you're going to take a dry vermouth and then you're going to combine it with this Amaro that's, you know, very low alcohol relative to what immediately jumps to your head with the word Amaro, and you're going to stir these together and you're going to, you know, serve them up with, um, yeah, it says the garnish would be like maybe a thyme sprig or something like a, a bitter cucumber uh, slice with the with the peel still left on it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be like, eh, I don't know, what else you got? Uh, but it, having tasted the Pasubio and being familiar with the Dolan Dry, I mean, it's just... Um, 
it, it, that's, it's gotta be like a symphony in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, the Dolan dry, we, we like, we have to talk about Dolan dry in the context of martinis usually. And one of my favorite ways, things to say about it is, is add structure where structure is needed and texture where texture is needed. And in this case, Suvio is bringing the texture. And so Dolan provides kind of the scaffold um, in a sense, its own kind of dilution as well as some supplemental botanicals. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, so what about food? Um, what would you, so like, you know, this is, it's, it's strange in that it's, it has a lightness of an aperitivo, but it like you, you literally look at it, it's, it's dark and it's got that, the smoky rhubarb in it. So it's kind of, it's kind of leaning in maybe slightly separate directions here. What would you pair with this? So I, I've, I haven't done a ton of pairing events with Pesubio, but I did one that was really kind of perfect. Uh, Pesubio is a high acid Amaro with a hint of smoke. There's a Basque cheese that's reasonably well available called Idiazabal, I-D-I-A-Z-A-B-A-L. And it is a high acid cheese, being a sheep's milk cheese, that is lightly smoked. And so they work really well together. And, and I would say in general... Uh, sheep's milk cheeses, especially harder sheep's milk cheeses, work really, really well with Pesubio. You know, if you lengthen it uh, with soda or tonic or the aforementioned fizzy lemonade, then a then a gentler cheese would work very well as well. Yeah, I could I could see Pesubio working really well in a in a high quality tonic because I think the 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 quinine uh, and the uh, smoked rhubarb wouldn't really clash. I think they'd complement each other all. more than they'd clash for sure. Um, which is not always the case with the, the rhubarb. You got to be very careful with that sfumato. Uh, otherwise, you can end up with a drink that is all lopsided. Yeah, people love barbecue, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so um, do you want to speak a little bit about the uh, Dolan Genepi, uh, since I've got the bottle here? Sure. Um, so Genepi is a category. Uh, it is the the sort of traditional opera ski in in the, Sev- the Savoyard, the French Alps. Um, it is the the name genipe is also the name of the most prominent herb that's used in traditional genipe. Uh, it's a it's one of the petite wormwoods. I, I've heard it described in English as mountain sage before, which seems maybe too cute by half. Um, now this is a product when we talk about spirit based botanical things. There's it's very important to recognize. There's two things that you, two ways you can extract flavor into spirit. One is to macerate, and one is to macerate and redistill or distill through you know, distill through a gin basket or something like that. Uh, and you get two very different profiles when you do that. When you distill a macerate of bitter stuff, you don't get the bitterness. The most of the bitter molecules are too heavy to come over. You get the nose, you get the lift, you get the brightness, and nose is such an important way to to get to to want to get back into a drink to to take a second sip um so with the dolan genipi uh there's a mix of herbs in which the herb genipi is is prominent that is macerated redistilled and then reinfused uh, before being sweetened and, and proofed to uh, 45 percent abv in our case um and so you get both the high and the low and that, that's a big part of the fun is that if you dilute this in a cocktail, you're still going to smell those great high notes, but you're also going to get the, the bitter structure and the herbal structure uh, in the drink. So it works very well even in very long drinks, uh, but it also lets other things uh, speak. 
Yeah, I, I I could see this obviously working as a uh, substitute for chartreuse, like in a chartreuse swizzle, uh, for example. That's like a nice, long, slightly bright and refreshing drink where you could, you know, see this working. Um, obviously, you've got a little bit of green, you know, kind of green-yellow or yellow-greenness um, that kind of indicates that post-distillation maceration um, with the, uh, obviously, something chlorophyllic, probably genopy yep. on both ends. Um, yep. And yeah, that's it's a it's an herb that really doesn't make its way to the United States. Uh, I I was working with a distiller friend of mine to just try and just you know build build a flavor library, and you know we had to in order to find the actual genipe, we actually had to work with a French company um, to to get it sent over here. So you know it's it's funny that we live in such a uh, a world that seems so immediately connected. It seems like we're so global right now, and yet. A lot of these products in your portfolio and a lot of the flavors and traditions wrapped up in that are very local, right? And and so I guess my next question about your portfolio and, and the geography that connects a lot of these regions together is, you know, A, have you, I imagine you've spent a bit of time traveling to some of these places and B, assuming that that's the case, um, you know, what have you learned about like the, the little idiosyncrasies were kind of like that, you know, I, I think of a map of Germany pre-unification, right? There are all these little, all these little regions, they're all abutting one another, but they were all so different is, do you experience that? Or do you experience more of like a kind of gradual fading of cultures and, and flavors into one another? I, I, I think things are different. I think, I think one of the, the, really obvious ones is just just look at the difference between aromatized wines from France and aromatized wines from Italy, where it, Italian ones tend to be quite a bit sweeter. Now that's that's a very macro division of things, but uh, but it's the, just the nature of of how most producers perceive perceive their local markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think <clears throat> the the strongest regional identities um, historically in stuff that we work with going beyond Vermouth de Chambéry and Vermouth de Torino, which are the two protected geographic indications uh, for Vermouth that we work in with uh, Dolan and, and Koki, uh, respectively, is to look at the world of quinquina or, or aromatized wine bittered with quinine. Um, the world of quinquina didn't really rise until the 1850s, 60s, 70s, during a time when Um, Wealth had concentrated in French cities, railroads had been built, uh, popular media was burgeoning and, and, you know, photographs for popular media back then. And so, and so advertising and marketing and branding were these beautiful poster art. And, and, and that goes into all the way through World War One. So producers in France made quinquinas to advertise their region. You know, Bonal tastes like the Alps, all those extra the mountain flowers and roots and, and stuff. Um, beer is, is rich and round and very friendly, something that, that can be quite a crowd-pleasing thing, and maybe, maybe by the beachside. The, the quinquinas from Mate in uh, Corsica, using Corsican grapes to get all that extra acidity and volcanic character, Corsican citrus, which was probably the thing Corsica was best known for in France other than Napoleon. And and really a, a, a fervent way of of announcing Corsica's presence in the modern France, uh, and and a lot of that a lot of that kind of stuff still comes today. Same thing with with Koki's uh, aromatized wines. Koki was a winery, and so they their aromatized wines would show off their wines. 
in a way, you know, whereas the wine base for Dola is, is meant to be more delicate mm-hmm. and, and more about letting the herbs show through. So, so those, those things are things that we can all relate to. Um, certainly anyone who, who is into European wines can relate to the differences in wines, but, you know, don't get me wrong. It's, it's wonderful to travel to all these places, uh, but, uh, but you can, you can relate to them based on, on things you can learn even here during Corona time. Right, right. Uh, and I think obviously we have, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are uh, leaning heavily into their into their hobby as home bartenders. So uh, I love being able to show off some of these uh, maybe lesser known bottles uh, or less familiar bottles. Uh, it's really exciting to me. Um, so as an importer, I, I, I do not often get to speak with people you know, kind of at you in, in your position in the three tier system. So what I'd like to do is maybe just for uh, the education of our listeners to be able to put you in context for like the value of, of what you bring to the table. Can you explain like the process that a bottle takes going from Italy or France, getting to the United States, then getting behind a bar or getting on a liquor store shelf and like the kind of the, the steps that need to be negotiated in there, especially if there's a denomination of origin involved, like you were mentioning with the, the two, you know, protected classifications of vermouths, for example. Yeah, the, the protected classifications themselves are both managed kind of internal to the industries. So they, because they aren't uh, uh, PDOs or, or the the, the, the highest level, they don't require a bunch of independent management. So, it, you know, certainly in our wor- work in the wine world, particularly with Madeira, it's uh, very important to get, uh, regu- we have to get regulatory approval from uh, the Eve, but what's called the Eve bomb, I-V-B-A-M, to take any wine off the island, but the producer is is in charge of that. And that's usually not, not too big a deal. Um, I, I think what's, What's the larger thing is is for anything that has a has botanical content or anything that has a recipe, um, the U.S. government want, will want to see the formula as well as a sample of the product to run it through a pretty strict series of lab tests. Um, there's there's a variety of things in of chemical compounds that are simply not permitted in the U.S. in alcoholic beverages or most anything else. Um, coumarin uh, is is a famous one that that's why we can't have real Zubrovka here. Um, there is a still a, a restriction on Tujone levels for uh, which is a wormwood extractive, uh, though the, those often aren't that hard to deal with. Um, I know there's been some issues uh, with not not prominent mezcal producers but but if you go to Oaxaca you will you will often hear of batches rejected for methanol because it's it can happen with fruit brandies too those fermentations are very tricky um, uh, as a matter of fact it's it's well known there's some well known fruit brandy producers that occasionally have have to deal with methanol issues uh, and it's you know it happens and often you can blend it away the so, so, so both there's a, both a paper process and a lab process to get a product product approved. Uh, a label has to be approved. And so, to give an example, using Pasubio, we can't put on the label that it's Marsala because it is a, a an infused product and it's not specifically regulated like something like Barolo Canato. We can't put on the label that it's a that it's an infused that it's a Marsala base. Uh, we have we say rich wine, I think, on the 
on the uh, on the back label on on a base of rich aged wine or something. Um, yep. So so every bit of label label text pretty much has to be approved. The government warning has to be a particular size. The words government warning have to be in bold type, uh, etc. So there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and then it becomes can you get a box onto a pallet and get it from point A to point B in a way that doesn't inflate the cost? Uh, so, you know, th that that's a, a lot of what Eric does now is manage the the flow of orders to make sure that that you, the customer, are getting the best bang for the buck out of our arranging the shipping. Um, so we're lucky in that we don't have to consolidate between different producers very often. We, we get enough products from a given producer that we can take, we can fill a whole container at that producer, which helps a lot, uh, especially it helps with uh, handling errors and things like that. Um, then you got you know, there, but it, during this time, it's a little bit harder to get containers. Um, it's a little bit harder to get ships and then get it over. Uh, we have a we use a, a common warehouse in New Jersey that a lot of importers use, and then our distributors pick up from there, or contract with a shipping company to pick it up from there. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, that, and and then you know, it, it's it's on us through both uh, direct work, at least pre-corona direct work, and work through our website and other marketing avenues to raise awareness of a product. Uh, try to to give folks uh, a reason to want to taste it or try it and uh, several different ways to use it. It's really important in our portfolio uh, that, that we, we bring in products that are versatile uh, and, and be able to show that, that versatility in a substantive way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean the difference between uh, someone using your bottle um, once a week versus once a, once a month is uh, it adds up pretty quickly in terms of turnover and um, just you know how how often someone's going to uh, come back and, and pick up a, a fresh bottle. So that's obviously very important. So what I wanted to ask, kind of related to the process of getting a bottle from Europe to to the U.S., is uh, I, I had a recent interview with uh, Chris Swanger, the president of uh, Discus, the Distilled Spirits Council, and um, we were talking about some of the most recent tariffs, and uh, obviously those are kind of going both ways right now. It's it's kind of ugly. Uh, it's not a good time for cheese. It's not a good time for scotch. It's not a good time for a lot of things flowing both in this direction and toward Europe from here. Uh, so d were your portfolio companies affected in this way? And I guess, if so, is there a plan or a, a hope um, that things will get better or get normalized? We were very fortunate in that, that we didn't have a ton of products affected um, because things like Pasubio are, are considered wine in the eyes of the law. They, they weren't in the Italian spirits uh, tariff. The but the impact of, of those tariffs is, is that it is much more on the consumer, both in terms of raised prices, but also in terms of the, the distributors that make sure that really cool products get to your state, uh, run into big cash flow problems uh, associated with these. Not only the products that they buy from importers like us, but a lot of those distributors are also importers themselves. And so they're having to pay upfront uh, tariffs to get stuff out of out of hock and get it get it to you, and so that that 
the consolidation that you see in the spirits production world or the wine and spirits production world is also happening at the distribution world. And so in, in order for, for you to keep getting a, a good supply of cool products, you want these smaller distributors to, uh, to stay alive. And that's, and that's a really important thing. Yeah. I don't think that people necessarily associate cash flow issues with uh, distributors. I think people very often uh, associate them with bars because the margins are so thin, right? Um, so, you know, as we've been uh, hearing news and, you know, following the pulse of what's happening in the bar and restaurant industry, you know, you hear this cry again and again for like, you know, well, we can't open at 50% capacity because then our cash flow, you know, we won't even, we'll be operating at a loss even at 50% capacity. So that makes complete sense. I think we're all familiar with that. But, you know, I think that for Americans who are in the know, it is easy to kind of despise the role that distributors play in the three-tier system in that it seems like an unnecessary step between um, you and that bottle getting another markup. Um, you know, the question might be, well, why don't these distribute or why don't these distilleries or these makers just kind of get it here themselves? Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of work being done on the regulatory side to make sure that all of this is navigated correctly. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, I go back and forth. I can sympathize with people not wanting to pay for another middle person in between them and their booze. On the other hand, like, <laughs> I think you got to uh, uh, step back and appreciate how much work actually goes into getting this bottle over here. Well, well, let's let's get a let's take a look at it through the just through the guise of order fulfillment. You know, most folks who are importers are going to store their products pretty close to the port, and most of that stuff is coming into New Jersey to uh, New York, New Jersey. So there's a few big warehouses in New Jersey where a lot of us sell. Now, let's say you're a small bar and you know, we love small bars. We love small retailers. Um, and let's say that for this week, you need um, four bottles of Dolan Dry, four bottles of Dolan Rouge, two bottles of Pesubio, two bottles of Heyman's London Dry Gin, right? Now, you can either call, in the current system, you can call someone you know who can get that to you tomorrow, or you'd have to call someone representing a pile of stuff in New Jersey, and you'd have to get a carrier to want to take your one little case to, let's just say, you know, Rapid City, South Dakota, instead of taking this 87 pallet order for Costco. Mm -hmm. Which one do you think they're getting paid more for? Right. And and oh, by the way, that friend you can call uh, to get your one mixed case of product. You can also call them at five o'clock on a Thursday, say, hey, I'm out of this one cocktail ingredient. What do you think would be a good substitute? You can get them to come and teach, a sta teach your staff background of stuff while you're doing something else pre-shift. Um, if you're a shop, you can get that person to come in and pour on a Saturday afternoon, you know, non-corona time. And and help uh, energize your your customers about drinking interesting things. So it, it's a lot more than just uh, just an invoice. Right, right. And I, I think that's it's just so easy to overlook, right? Um, yeah. You know, when we walk into a liquor store, we walk into a bar, we're focused on the bottle or the glass in front of us, and uh, you know the fine, the direct immediate 
proximal financial impact that has on your wallet uh, as opposed to everything else. So that's why I love having these conversations. I think they're really eye-opening for people. uh, And I really want people to have a a sense of how the entire industry works together, not just some segment. So that's been really helpful. Um, Before we move on to any lightning roundy sort of stuff here, I want to talk uh, Roncio. I want to talk weird, funky uh, heat and uh, oxygen... um, affected or uh, matured wine products because it is something that we're going to have to do individual episodes on all these subregions <laughs> because there's, there's no way we can cover this all now but uh, can you talk uh about that specific kind of sub portfolio in uh in house alpens's uh i guess um what is what is the name of that portfolio to begin with sure we call it a sotalone selections mm-hmm. uh, and it's a subset of our website if you if you go up to, to wines uh, on our website, there'll be a subsection for Sotalone. Uh, Sotalone is uh, one of the flavonoids that you find in a lot of oxidized wines. It's the it's sort of a maple syrup flavor. It's sometimes associated with the spice fenugreek. Mm. And this is this came about as as kind of a collection of things we were always enthusiastic about or that we had learn to become enthusiastic about through our travels. You know, we, we working with Birkenkina, we spent more time in the French part of Catalonia and learned about dry rancio and, uh, and the various fortified wines of that region, Banyuls, Mori, and Rivasalt. Um, we were always Madeira fans, and we learned about Henriquez and Enriquez and really learned about how they, they do things very differently from what everyone else does on the island, that you can taste it, and it makes... The wine's more fun to pair with food throughout a meal, as was the case in, in a long time ago in America. And and so we decided, let's let's go for it. Let let's let's do what we do on the Alpine side and be evangelists, be teachers, and recognize that the there there is a practicality to some of these wines, and that in that you can use a sample for longer. You know, if you if you take out a bottle of of Sauvignon Blanc as a as a distributor rep, you better you better show that to eight or nine people on one day, or else, you know, you, you haven't really uh, operated in, in the service of that wine or in the service of that producer. Uh, with with most of the wines in the Sotolone portfolio, uh, it's a lot more practical from a from a showing and sales perspective. In that way, it's also more practical for for the the consumer. They can buy a bottle and, and follow it over a few days or weeks or months, or in the case of Madeira, even a, a few years. Right, for sure. Uh, so for those of you listening who want to learn more about Madeira, um, check out our interview uh, with Michael Scafidi, um, who talks all about um, you know the story of Madeira, the various uh, sub-varieties thereof. Um, but uh, I guess it's important to identify for our listeners who might not be as well-versed in these things that uh, in the, the Sotolone selections, uh, they're all oxidized, meaning that, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, aromatized or fortified wines, uh, are aged, you know, without extensive aeration or, um, uh, exposure to air, to oxygen. Um, it, it creates that kind of tawny, brownish uh, color. And then obviously, uh, uh, Sotolone, uh, the, the flavonoid that you were referencing, that, that maple syrupy, fenugreeky type of flavor. Um, it's really beautiful to pair with anything from charcuterie to desserty stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I think we've, we've tried to be relatively precise about how we talk about 
pairing these things with food. We start with dry rancio, the, the unfortified, fully oxidized wines of Catalonia, um, mainly from the, the little sliver of Catalonia that's in France, what we, what we call the Roussillon. Those are wines that are have an intense level of umami, high but very developed and, and complex com, uh, acidity. Um, and then, of course, the nuttiness and, and characteristics that you would find in, in an oxidized wine. And so the, the, the most traditional thing to pair with those wines in the region is anchovies. The anchovies are very hard to pair with wine because they're salty, they're fishy, they're full of umami. They, they trod on a lot of what we call normal wines or reductive wines. Uh, but Rancio wines work with pretty much anything salty. The salt will kind of cause the wine to express more richly on the palate, but the acid of the wine will cleanse the, the palate of the, of the intense fat and protein that you sometimes find in those kind of foods. In the world of Madeira, remember that Madeira can go from very dry to very sweet. But I think one of the things where H&H's wines are so different is because they make and blend their wines to be about the full expression of the acidity. They don't put in a young wine in a blend labeled 10 years old. Every, every drop of it is at least 10 years old. They don't put any uh, red grape Madeira into wines that are labeled as coming from a white grape. The allowance is 15%. But... By not doing so, you don't get any of that extra rich red grape texture uh, in those wines. And so a, a Cerciol from H&H actually goes really well with oysters, which is the traditional American pairing for, for um, oysters, a Cerciol Madeira. The Verdalio Madeiras work so well with, with richer fish dishes or chicken, or, or I find they go with very profound, hard cow's milk cheeses. And so we, a lot of this information is on our website, but it's also... It's also when you talk to us, we, we've we've been through it, and we often will will show don't tell those those kind of uh, conversations. We'd much I'd much rather show you that Coqui Vermouth de Torino goes with salami, or uh, or even that Arancio wine goes with anchovies. You know they make uh, they make Tupperware that screws closed, so you don't get the fishy smell in your bag so badly. <laughs> uh, I'd rather show you that than tell you that. Yeah, and uh, you know, in in researching for um, these interviews, sometimes you come across interesting articles, and um, there happens to be an article uh, that features uh, your tool of choice uh, when uh, when going out and applying uh, your your trade. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about your tool of choice? And in I I loved reading that article. I was cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> so I um as as I imagine most of you out there who who have ever made drinks for yourself or other people offsite. I have a sheathed bar knife. Uh, mine is by Kunricon, which I can buy at my local Wegmans. Um, and it, it allows me to, to travel with a knife in my check luggage without being too worried about uh, sticking myself when I'm unpacking. And it allows me when I'm setting up for a tasting to prepare either citrus peels, if I'm talking about spritzes or, or those sorts of garnishes, or snacks. Uh, again, a lot of this is pre-corona. Um, uh, you know, I don't know how well communal snacks are going to go over for a while post Corona, but, uh, but, it, you know, I can, I can cut up a, a, a nice Alpine, mild Alpine cheese to go with a Blanc vermouth or, or slice a, a salami. And I often use American producers such as Oli or, or, um, um, Olympic, Provi Olympia provisions, I guess they're called now to go with, uh, a, a big intense vermouth, uh, red vermouth. And it, it it's a variety. Do it for a variety of reasons. One, 
it's a, it's a way of talking about versatility, that these things aren't just for cocktails or aren't just for one specific purpose. Uh, two, you know, in a lot of states that I work in, the, the shops that sell wine don't sell booze, particularly in Virginia and North Carolina uh, and New Hampshire uh, and Maine. Uh, the shops that sell wine, by and large, don't sell booze. So it's great to talk about Manhattans, but if, that, but if someone can't walk out with a bottle of whiskey with their vermouth, then I'm not serving the I'm not serving the retailer the best way I can, um, you know. And 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 last is it's fun, it's it's fun, it's different, it's context, and it's you know, you're not making people someone daydream. You're giving someone something to eat. Yeah, and I think it's it's nice also to be able to have something to do to like to actually have a little manual task to do because people, I think feel less uh freaked out about like kind of like checking out what you're doing if you're not just sitting there with your arms folded looking at them (laughs) (laughs) uh but hey who knows i mean maybe uh maybe you can still do what you do um but you'll just need to like partner with a commercial kitchen to like make you like a little lunchables style uh thing and just you know you roll out your little red wagon like a soccer mom and start throwing out lunchables and uh you know pair it with your your house alpens uh portfolio I just hope that we can get to a point uh, that that this conversation uh, is even something we can countenance because that means uh, I'll be back on the road and and we'll be wanting to to teach in in the in the old way and and won't be uh, still hemmed in by by a really terrible virus. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, I hesitate to get into Rancio, so we won't do that. It's just too big of a subject. Um, so I guess uh, I'll just wrap up this uh, main portion of the interview by asking, um, is there anything else you'd like to to share with our listeners about House Alpens, about kind of the state of the union of things now, or about um, things to get excited about in terms of um, spirits or aromatized wines? I think from from our portfolio, I, I think it's it's. It's fun to get excited about simple mixtures, simple drinks, a glug of this, a glug of that. And there's a lot on our website that that goes into these very, very simple mixtures, things that you can put in a glass with some ice and go sit by the grill or hang out with your kids or or, or do something other than worrying about uh, uh, making a perfectly presented cocktail. Um, and so that in our recipe section, there's a lot of 50-50 drinks. There's a lot of stuff in the, in the text on our website. Um, I think we're going to, we're going to be here for a while. Um, you know, I, I, I see so many of my, my friends in the bar world who are real, real talisman, uh, but it's going to be very, very hard to justify both for that, for them, the, the flow and the risk to, to opening broadly while we're still in the midst of this. And so uh, a lot of them uh, have done a great job of, of creating extra value for themselves out of, out of to go things and doing educations. And I love all of that. And, and, and it's always happy, always happy to support all of that. And, and the, some really savvy ones have turned into some really good bottle shops, which is uh, a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, still very much up in the air. But I th- I, one of the things that I do really love about your site, uh, you, we've we've referenced it 
uh, sort of in passing as we've been talking, but you do have, you know, with the descriptions of the uh, selections that you offer, you do have really good pairing notes there. And yeah. I think especially for these slightly more esoteric or uh, less common, at least here in the States, uh, bottles, I think that's really important because, you know, I, I think I have a decent palate and I still find myself, you know, pulling out the flavor Bible on a weekly basis or, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to, you know, build a cocktail, I always go to the manufacturer's site and see what they at least see where they're starting to recommend things. So, um, I, for people who are now, you know, let's assume that you've drunk down your liquor cabinet a little since this has all gotten started and you're looking to replenish. Um, my recommendation would be to do that intelligently to try and, and plan it out and, um, you know, look for things that are going to pair with what you're going to be eating over the next couple of months. We do have fr lots of fresh produce coming available here in the U.S. And a lot of people have been, you know, myself included, have been doing, you know, their little gardening projects since we've all been stuck at home. So if you're if your tomatoes are getting close, well, maybe, you know, think about what you're going to pair with those. And I, I think um, most of us just aren't aware of some of the resources online specifically from the makers and the importers like yourselves that are just sitting there largely unused by consumers who just walk into the liquor store and, uh, and read labels, you know? Yeah. And if you haven't had a red snapper with Royal Heyman's Royal doc gin, then this is your mm -hmm. chance to get it with your own tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The red snapper being sort of a, a ginny uh, bloody Mary take for those who aren't familiar. So um, Jake, are you ready to jump into some lightning round questions here? Sure. All right. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've more recently fallen in love with? So I, I think uh, a lot of folks who, who have met me out there know my love of low alcohol stirred cocktails. And so I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to take it down to one, but I, I will occasionally refer to um, four drinks as the impregnable quadrilateral of, of low alcohol stirred drinks, it's the, the Adonis which is a, a, a sherry and red vermouth stirred drink. Uh, the bamboo, which uh, I, I firmly believe is fino or manzanilla and dry vermouth. The chrysanthemum, which is dry vermouth, benedictine absinthe. Mm -hmm. And the rose, which is dry vermouth, kirschwasser, raspberry syrup. And th those are four drinks that, that are, are really, really fun to, to talk about, to drink, uh, and they get you ready for dinner in, in a wonderful way. Yeah, um, I, I think especially the two, um, the the first two you mentioned, the the bamboo and the Adonis are, are pretty pretty easy and accessible. Uh, you can you know create them, you know, exclusively using House Alpens' offerings. Uh, do you offer a Kirschwasser? No, and and I mean the Adonis, the Adonis and bamboo is stated are sherry drinks, and we we don't import any any oh, sherry or Montagna or Montilla or Cordoba or. Um, but I mean, certainly people do do variations using dry rancio as the base uh, for those two drinks. Uh, we don't import a Kirschwasser. There are quite a few good ones uh, in the market, including some made here in America. Um, the don't don't get uh, too worried about using too much of it. I, you don't you don't need much more than three quarters of an ounce in that drink uh, mm -hmm. of, of a good Kirschwasser. Um, and remember that raspberry syrup. You know, certainly it's nice to make your own raspberry syrup. The raspberry syrup in cocktails of the time would have been similar to the raspberry syrup used to flavor medications. So if you make a batch with frozen raspberries and you keep it in the freezer and use it several months later, it's still going to be fine. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. Next question. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Oh, geez. 
Um, I, I I guess I guess Kinkina. Uh, you know, Kinkina is is a bit maligned or or misunderstood. People think it's vermouth. Kinkina is has a particular history of an ex and and expressiveness. Um, Kinkina works in some ways like vermouth, but in many ways not like vermouth. Um, it's it's a little um, you have to kind of get into it to to really explore it. And so that's something I don't know if I I, I would personify that, but it's certainly certainly something that that intrigues me uh, in a particular way. Yeah, um, it's fascinating hearing you speak earlier about um, how the rise of the Kinkina kind of um, was aided and abetted by some of the new media at the time. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely have to do a little bit more research on that. And obviously, you know, it it is not a category that is super prevalent here in the U.S. So again, that might be something where people need to go a little bit farther afield to actually do the research. All right. Well, moving on then, if uh, you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would that be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a little picture. Gosh, that, I, I mean, the, there's there's a technical answer to that question. I'd I'd like to, um, I, I'd like to meet the first person who got famous in ancient Rome for making for making vermouth. You know, the the Greeks were doing it. Um, we're adding wormwood to wine, but the Romans made it kind of uh, a societal thing. And, and of course, we would drink their vermouth. Um, in terms of a, a historic answer, I, I've always been fascinated by by the history of gastronomy in the city of Lyon in France. And so much of it is driven by by the very famous uh, chef La Mère Brasier, who was sort of the woman who held an iron fist over over the restaurants of Lyon uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and I, I would I would like to know what she has for breakfast on an off day and what she's drinking with it. Nice, nice. Yeah, Lyon's a very very important city uh, in that regard, and um, and uh, you know it's 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 a shame that most people when they visit uh, end up going to you know Paris and Normandy and sort of like the western regions of France, but don't don't always make it to those internal non coastal cities where there's just so much beautiful culture around the things to eat and drink. So what's a common or tradition? Well, this is, this might be tricky. Dang. Uh, I, I just happened to ask this question to all the people who are, have incredibly wide experience tasting, but is there a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that comes to mind that you've never tasted? And if so, you know, why? You know, I've never tasted Iraq from Sri Lanka. Okay. Uh, co coconut spirit. Uh, there is one that's commercialized in the UK, just under the name Ceylon Iraq. Um, you know, the word Iraq just means booze in pretty much every language in the world in some way, shape, or form. And so we work with a, a, a cane spirit from what we now call Indonesia called Batavia Iraq. Uh, Batavia Iraq is a, a molasses spirit that's uh, fermented with a little bit of koji. Um, and uh, Batavia Iraq certainly had a, a huge following in punch houses in London, where it was sort of the, the, the poshest thing you could get a punch with. But Sri Lankan Iraq was certainly drunk and mixed uh, uh, in a variety of ways, in a variety of, of cultural contexts. And uh, I've never had one. Mm. 
Yeah, interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff coming out of India, obviously being kind of spearheaded by Paul John uh, and the work that they're doing in the whiskey space. But, um, you know, there's there's also lots of uh, sort of what we might consider in the West alternative um, bases being used. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think um, a lot of those spirits are going to be some of the more exciting things that, that if they do manage to make it here are going to be you know, pretty, pretty sought after, I think, you know, when bars start to uh, reopen and, and normalize their programs again. Well, if the quality is there and the price is there, I mean, there, there is a, a practicality to this business, which uh, is unavoidable. Right, right. All right. Last big question. What's an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits and cocktail world? I like a lot of dilution in brown spirit cocktails. I think that, you know, you know, if you go back in the history of brown spirits, and particularly whiskey for cocktails, back in the day when all the classic whiskey cocktails were written, those whiskeys were older whiskeys that had, in almost every case, a lower barrel entry proof and raised in barrels of much older wood that had been weathered a lot more before it was made into a barrel. And so the wood expression in those whiskeys was much rounder, more complex, less tannic, less lignant, um, I, you know, almost an, getting with extra age a, a little bit even bit of an umami effect. And so those whiskeys just tasted different cold and much more supple cold than most of the whiskeys today that we can afford to mix with. Um, and so if you take the same proportions and the same mixing technique, you're going to get a drink that's a lot more tannic today or lignic, uh, lignin's the word for wood tannins, you're going to get a drink that's much harsher on the palate than you would have gotten 120, 140 years ago. Yep. And that's, at I the mean, same, at the same time though, the only other really tannic thing that we drink is red wine and you don't serve red wine ice cold. And so I always sort of think for, for brown spirit drinks, more dilution, which you can't do with ice at some point, you just have to add water. And I, and a warmer drinking temperature, not ice cold, not worrying about getting those drinks ice cold, get the dilution right and get the dilution enough. And the, and the cocktail will dance across your palate. It might become more liquid. You actually drink it faster and you'll be more refreshed by it and you'll be ready to move on to dinner or, or a next drink or whatnot. You'll taste the whiskey more. You'll taste the other ingredients more. Um, but uh, but that's, that's a hard thing, especially in the on, on-premise world where people expect... Uh, a bar person to put everything in a, in a mixing glass with ice, stir it, strain it and set it forth. And it's supposed to be exactly perfect right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, it's interesting to think about the idea of a refreshing old fashioned or the idea of the old fashioned as being something that you might drink before dinner versus after dinner. Um, and I, I love the impulse to uh, consider what might've been different about the spirits and cocktails being drunk in the mid 19th century compared to what we've got today. Because, uh, I, I think if you, if you skip that step, uh, it, it, it turns into a bit of a navel gazing practice in that you're like, well, of course, of course you're going to agree with yourself. Right. Um, yeah. so I, I, love that, um, gesture toward context. Um, and I think that's, uh, one of the things that makes you a particularly, uh, effective and uh, compelling educator. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I, w- I would say, uh, you can you can very easily go overboard in this conversation. I think that um, 
today, even though there's a lot of gins today that don't really work in traditional cocktails and that there's a whole business associated with those kind of gins, I think the best of traditional gins today are as good as they've ever been. Uh, we're very fortunate to, to represent some of those in Hayman's and work incredibly well in traditional cocktails uh, across the canon of traditional cocktails. Uh, but I, I think that the brown spirit world, I think we're so used to to, to seeing a, a Manhattan or, or or a drink like that as, as having to be this punchy thing that we sort of lose sight of. Well, okay, you've been served a Manhattan. Now are you going to drink it or are you going to sit there and wait for it to warm up? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Jake, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure. Can you just wrap us up and take us home here by um, letting folks know where they can connect with you and with House Alpens, uh, both um, on social media and uh, on the interwebs? Sure. Uh, our website is alpens.com, although housealpens.com does redirect. Uh, we are at House Alpens on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Instagram and Facebook, we are at Sotalone Selections for uh, in, more in, in, info on the oxidative side of our book. Uh, and uh, my uh, Instagram is Jake H. Parrot, two R's, two T's. Uh, I still have a Twitter, but I don't really use it very much. Same Z's. Uh, well, Jake, Jake, this has been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, of course, I would, um, as long as it's legal to do so, uh, in a world where it would be legal to do so, I would encourage people to uh, go out and uh, check out the House Alpens uh, portfolio at, at your favorite um, establishments, whether on-premise or off-premise. And those are our words in the industry for um, you know bars and restaurants versus liquor stores. Um, and uh, otherwise, just thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.
This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, oxidized and low-proof spirits, and high-octane flavor courtesy of Jake Parrott and House Alpins, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.